Our scripture today is from Luke 22, 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thanks, Dan. Again, thanks, Sam, for leading worship. For those of you that are new, that's normally what I do on Sundays, so um, it's glad to, I'm glad to change roles. Um, every so often, I get to. As, as most of us know, um, we've spent the summer in a series that we've called Speaking of Jesus. And what we've been looking at all summer is the way in which Jesus spoke, the way in which he used language. We've done so by kind of following this, what's been called the travel narrative in Luke's gospel, where Jesus travels through this land called Samaria. And this place of Samaria kind of represents this secular landscape, this non-religious context, if you will. Really, the place that most of us occupy most of the time when we're not in a place like this, doing the kind of things we're doing this morning. And so what we've seen And heard is Jesus speak to those that were following him, those that were close to him, that trusted him, believed in him in some way. We've watched Jesus speak to the Pharisees who he encounters, the kind of religious zealots. And then we've also seen Jesus speak with those that were far from him, that had not yet decided to trust in him, people that we might think of as lost or unbelievers. But today um, actually marks something like a transition for us. Today, In this final month of this series, the month of August, we're going to turn to the way in which Jesus spoke to his Father in heaven. We're going to watch and we're going to listen in on how Jesus spoke in his prayers. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the prayers that Jesus prayed in those final days of his life before he ended up on a cross being crucified. Now, that's not to say that prayer hasn't been a main theme for us this summer, though. Um, In fact, prayer has shown up at least four times already. You may remember this from previous Sundays. Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, and then he told us three parables, all describing various facets of prayer. And so by way of reminder, we've seen in the parable of the persistent widow, the perseverance of prayer, something like the perseverance of prayer. We saw the parable of the friend at midnight, which taught us something of the presumption of prayer. And we saw the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which taught us something of the posture of prayer. And I think in today's story, the scene um, of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, well, actually, these three um, themes will kind of reemerge for us in the story of Jesus we have before us this morning. And so in addition to these three, I'm going to just add one more. And this fourth point, which I'm going to call the problem of prayer, which hopefully will make more sense for us in a moment. Um, But that will actually be our headings this morning. That will kind of guide our time together. So these are our four headings 
So the problem of prayer, the perseverance of prayer, the presumption of prayer, and the posture of prayer, and you know a good preacher if they can make everything start with the same letter. So just kind of doing one of these. Actually, I don't know. That may mean that you're a really bad preacher. I'm not sure, but um, I don't always preach, but when I do. Anyways, um, but I think to help us get into this story just a bit better, the story that Dana read from us from Luke chapter 22, I'm actually going to invite you to turn back in your Bible, quite a few pages, to the gospel according to Matthew. We're actually going to read another account of this same scene in Jesus's life from the story of Matthew. Not that Luke doesn't give us um, enough or that it doesn't paint a full picture, but I do think the scene as we have it in Matthew, especially if we kind of pan out a little bit and consider the larger context of Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, uh, I think it'll be helpful for us uh, this morning. And before I read, I should tell you, um, and a lot of you probably already feel this way and just having um, Dana read it for us, like already are kind of sucked into this story, but um, this is one of my personal favorite passages in all of scripture. And I think anyone that's read this story for any amount of time kind of knows, intuits um, pretty quickly um, that this story kind of has no bottom. Like you could read this story again and again and again and the implications, the profundity, what it means about Jesus, and by implication, what it means about us who follow Jesus, um, is one of the most profound and compelling stories we have in all of Scripture. And so I say that just by way of kind of an aside to say there's much more that we could say about this story this morning, but for our purposes today, we are going to focus in on what it teaches us about Jesus and prayer in particular. And that may be um, kind of a right intuition to think about this story from the aspect of prayer. As some of you may know, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives is actually um, the Hebrew word which means olive press. It was a place where um, ancient um, Jewish people or Sumerian people would go um, to press olive, to make olive oil. And so in a lot of ways... You might say prayer is kind of like olive oil. It might sound weird, right? But if you think about it, in the ancient world, olive oil was literally used for everything. It was used for everything. It was a preservative. It was used in perfumes. It was used for medicinal purposes. It was used for cleaning. It was even used in various kinds of machinery as a lubricant. It was used at home and it was used at work. It was used for anointing in the religious context. And of course, it was used every day in ordinary ways for cooking and for flavoring. It was made and used for the very things that sustain life. So hopefully you see the point. In a lot of ways, prayer is like olive oil in the ancient world. It is kind of meant to just saturate and permeate our whole life, all of our coming and going, our everyday, ordinary life. So, having said all that, by way of introduction, let's read together from Matthew chapter 26. And just a heads up, it's kind of a long section of Scripture, but I do think kind of panning out will will help us along the way. So I'm going to read from Matthew 26, beginning in verse 30, and I'll try to do it in a way where you don't fall asleep. Beginning in verse 30. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And of course, all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Lord, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to take from this story in the life of Jesus what, what you would have for us. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us the meaning of prayer and all that goes with it. And... Um, 
Yes, shut our ears to anything that I might say that would not be fitting. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin our first heading, the problem of prayer. To say it a bit more precisely, our problem with prayer. So to kind of help us get into this, you, those of you that heard, heard me teach and preach before know I kind of do this um, pretty much every time, I guess, but let's just begin with a few questions to kind of help us get into uh, the right frame of mind so we're all kind of thinking um, in the same direction. Actually, and some of these questions are coming right out of the uh, study guide that we've been using over the course of the summer um, for Tell It Slant, the book uh, Eugene Peterson. This question is, which do you believe is more effective, doing something or praying? What do you do more of? Which do you believe is more effective, doing something or praying, and which do you do more of? I think most of us, if we were to answer these questions at least half honestly, would find that perhaps prayer plays a bit of second fiddle to our own activity. We prefer to get up, get to work, get going to do something rather than pray. For many of us, our problem with prayer stems from this preoccupation with what we might call results. It is the American way, after all. We prize efficiency, practicality, We are a decidedly pragmatic culture. So to our eyes and ears, prayer flies in the face of our pragmatic concerns. Our problem with prayer is that it doesn't seem to do anything, let alone work half the time. We are sometimes like the disciples in the story. We fall asleep when we should be praying and jump in swinging our swords, getting into action, trying to make things happen all by ourselves. A second problem we face Well, I say we, second problem I face in prayer is the recognition that sometimes life stinks. Of course, we may not articulate it quite like I'm about to, and I don't know that we would even if we could, but many of us have fallen prey to a certain lie. And that is, if we follow Jesus, everything will go well for us, that our life will prosper, and we will never again find ourselves in trouble or downcast, or sorrowful, or conflicted, or confused, or in pain. And we believe that to follow Jesus roughly equates to a life of ease and comfort. But as we even read in the Psalms earlier, as we have in Jesus in this story, prayer often, sometimes, begins with the admittance that something is wrong. Something is off. If you think about it, Jesus says in uh, verse uh, 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he turns to his friends and says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. If you remember the version uh, from Luke that Dana read for us, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So if I could, let me translate some of this for you. Jesus, in a sense, in modern vernacular, is having a panic attack. In the church, we often disparage what we sometimes call foxhole prayers. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but it's the kind of prayer that you just throw up when you're kind of at wit's end. You don't know what else to do. And oftentimes, we kind of, you know, just kind of throw foxhole prayers to the side because they don't seem genuine or they're, they're not authentic or something. 
But Jesus, in this story, in a way, in the midst of a panic attack, an anxiety attack, something to that effect, is praying a foxhole prayer. He is in pain. He is in trouble, both internally and externally. And he turns not to activity, but to prayer as a means by which not only to cope, but to walk through the trouble and the pain. Prayer, sometimes, not always, begins right here. Something is wrong, something is off. But a lot of us don't pray precisely because we have a hard time admitting that anything is wrong. We have kind of fallen prey to the prosperity gospel, but you know, without naming it as such. Because we believe that if we admit something wrong, this might draw into question you know, what we believe and the authenticity of our faith, question our love of Jesus. But this simply is not true. This is one of the first lessons I think we learned from this story. In Jerusalem, near the place where archaeologists think the Garden of Gethsemane may have been located, there is a church. I think we have a slide. Yes, there is a church. And so somewhere in our distant past, some genius decided to build a church where they thought the Garden of Gethsemane was. And I mean that sincerely. A smart human being decided to put up a monument at the Garden of Gethsemane. And does anyone know what this church is called? Hmm? Oh, good guess, but no. Um, Some call it the uh, Church of the Nations, but its original name was the Basilica of Agony. It was the church of agony. This is where we meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the midst of his agony. There's a second slide which shows the inside of it, I think. Um, and so that stone would be the olive press. That would be what they would use to squash the olives to get the oil. And so granted, we don't know if this was really where the Garden of Gethsemane was or this exact stone is where Jesus prayed, but the symbolism of this church is meant to tell us something. That this is the Jesus we meet in the Garden of Gethsemane, a human Jesus, a broken Jesus, a weak Jesus, a Jesus in agony. So why do we think that our life is immune from such similar moments? As as, uh, Peterson writes, Jesus' prayers are a strong defense against the persistent satanic illusion that seduce us with the promise that if we only follow Jesus, our life will be trouble-free, pain-free, boredom-free, and anxiety-free. The persistent satanic illusion. And of course, all of this is to say nothing about another huge problem of prayer that many of us face, and that is the so-called problem of unanswered prayer which we'll get to in a few moments. So this is our problem with prayer. It's not practical, it's not efficient. We are results-oriented, we need tangibles, real-world solutions, and we have a hard time admitting that anything is wrong, that sometimes life hurts, that sometimes we are in trouble, and that in ourselves we are powerless, often, to do much about it. So some of us, because of our problems with prayer, never pray. But of course, some of us do. Some of us at least sometimes, even if only from foxholes. But if we get started praying, many of us, see if you have had this experience, we get started praying, and at some point, we notice that our prayer life starts to dwindle, 
starts to fade and dissipate until we find that once again, we're not praying. Our prayer life is much more fits and starts and much less pray without ceasing. And this will bring us to our second heading, the perseverance of prayer. So again, to help kind of get us going, get us looking in the same direction, let's begin the series of questions. When have you given up praying for something or someone because you didn't get the results that you wanted? When have you given up praying for someone or something because you didn't get the results that you wanted or expected? I think like the persistent widow that you may remember from several weeks ago in Luke chapter 18, we see in this story of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, persisting in prayer, persevering in prayer. Jesus' request to his friends was simple. Remain here, keep watch, and pray with me. In Luke's account, he specifically asked them twice, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. But of course, like so many of us often do, Jesus' friends simply fell asleep. And this is going to sound like a joke, but I, don't, I honestly don't mean it as a joke, um, although it is kind of funny. Um, one of the most common excuses that we give for why we don't pray is sleepiness. We are either too tired to wake up early and pray, or at the end of the day, we're too tired to stay up later and pray. We are too exhausted, too tired, too sleepy. And this uh, is probably a close second to another popular reason, busyness. But we've already kind of talked about um, the problems of prayer and that we're just too busy. And this, of course, is just another symptom of our preoccupation with results. So let us say this. Prayer is not magic. It is not an incantation. We don't always get the results that we want or expect. And yet... Again and again in Scripture, we see examples of those who persevere and persist in prayer. Again, I think Peterson helps us here. He writes, if we are addicted to results, we will quickly lose interest in prayer. But when we pray, we willingly participate in what God is doing. Without knowing precisely what God is doing, how he is doing it, and when we will know what is going on, if ever. In other words, um, you may remember, as Dylan reminded us a few weeks ago as he taught from the parable of the persistent widow, oftentimes much more is going on in prayer than we can see or that we realize. Things are happening in the process of persevering, things unseen in the moment, but that bear fruit in our lives and the lives of others later on. And notice, too, in our story for today, perhaps a bit more obvious, Jesus prays not once, not twice, but three times in Gethsemane. By the end of the story, Jesus, in effect, is praying all alone. His friends have fallen asleep, but Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane praying all by himself. Sometimes persevering prayer is simply praying when everyone else has gone home, praying all by ourselves. When no one else is around, when no one is watching, when everyone else has stopped praying or given up or moved on, or even just turned to pray for something else. Persevering prayer keeps at it. As I mentioned earlier, my friend Kyler, who's been in 
uh, Vickery for the last, geez, 10 years. I think you're a perfect example of faithful, persevering prayer. Kyler's been in Vickery. People have come and have gone. And when no one else was there, when no one was, when no one else showed up, it wasn't glamorous. Kyler's there praying for the people of Vickery, praying for families, ethnicities, religious groups, new believers, persevering in prayer. And of course, some of us can white knuckle it. I've managed to white knuckle it for a long time in, in persevering prayer. We do pretty good for a while. We persevere. We pray somewhat regularly. But after some period of time, a week, a month, a span of several years even, prayer begins to lose its hold on us and its priority in our life. And we find ourselves slipping back into the false belief that what we really need, what we actually need, what will be the most effective is more action, more control. So we stop praying and get back to the real work. And so it's here that I think we'll come up against our third heading for this morning, and that is to say that if we manage to overcome our problem with prayer and persevere in prayer for some period of time, inevitably we have to come to terms with the presumption of prayer that has guided our prayer up to this point. Hopefully that will make sense, more sense in a moment. So again, kind of shifting focus again, new heading, new theme. Let's again begin with a series of questions. What do you think prayer is for? What do you think prayer is for? What is your expectation when you pray? What do you expect from God when you pray? That is, what do you expect God to do? Do you expect God to answer or something else? So you'll remember several weeks ago, at the beginning of the summer, we were in Luke chapter 11, and we saw the parable. Of the, I call it the friend at midnight. I don't know if that's the real title for that parable, but you know, the guy comes and asks for um, something for his, his friend, but it's the middle of the night, and so he wakes the person up so that they'll get it for him. But I think just as in that parable, just as we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think prayer operates out of a specific presumption about what it is that prayer does and what it is for and the expectations about what God will do as a response to our prayers. Maybe I should explain that. <clears throat> I think most of us, myself included, operate out of the presumption that God will answer our prayers. And that's kind of the bottom, the baseline presumption and assumption that we think prayer uh, when we come to prayer. We expect God will answer. Of course, as we often do in the affirmative, that he's going to answer and give us, you know, whatever it is that we tend to ask for. And the presumption, of course, has something to do with, um, you know, correlates somehow with our faith. If we have enough faith and we pray, we'll get what we want. However, um, this suggestion uh, however, I want to suggest that maybe this presumption is not quite right. Is that really all we expect from God? That he will answer? Is this really the expectation we should have when we pray? Now, of course, we say things like, yes, God always answers prayer, but sometimes the answer is just no. You've probably heard that. It's kind of a colloquial kind of 
thing that we say. Um, and I think this is, for the most part, true, and it's probably a helpful bit of Christian folkism. And in fact, in many ways, it's on display for us in today's story. If you notice in Matthew's account, uh, Jesus, when he prays, he actually changes his prayer from one time to the next. Well, look, I think we have slides for this. The first time that he prays, in verse 39, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. But notice the second time that Jesus comes in prayer, he drops the if it be possible and simply says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. What does this mean? Now, of course, this is somewhat speculative on my part, but could it be that Jesus had heard the answer to his first prayer? Could it be that he had received his answer? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. And the answer was no. It's not possible. There is no other way. So Jesus, in his second and third prayer, prays with what we might call acceptance. He's received his answer and prays, My Father, if it can't pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What else does this tell us about how Jesus approached prayer? What is his working assumption? I think for our purposes today, we can notice two distinct presumptions about prayer that may be of help um, in our own prayer. First, the presumption is that prayer matters. Prayer can actually change things. Prayer, according to Jesus, can change things. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, some of you know this. Um, I, I apologize. As you know, I'm in a graduate program studying philosophy, so this is, for some of you, will be interesting. For some of you, you can just turn me off for a minute. I don't mean to be too philosophical, but um, this little phrase here, if it be possible, in Luke's account, if you are willing, this little word, if, has tripped up scholars and theologians for centuries. Was there another way? Did Jesus think there was? What does this mean for the plan of salvation? What does this mean for the gospel? I certainly don't uh, think I can untangle these knots for us this morning, and in fact, that's quite beside the point. So leaving these questions to the side for a moment, I think what this tells us about prayer and much more relevant to the present discussion is this. Do we really think Jesus simply prays these words under a false pretense? Like, does he pray knowing full well that it's not possible, that there is no other way, and that it doesn't matter what he prays for because whatever's going to happen is just going to happen anyways? Like, is this really how we think about Jesus? That this is just an empty, meaningless, rote prayer said by a man who doesn't believe that his prayer will actually change anything or that could potentially even change anything? Is this how we imagine Jesus praying disingenuously without any expectation that his prayers matter or that they might actually influence what God does? But how many of us operate with this very presumption when we pray that prayer is just really a formality? We believe something like the following. God is going to do what God is going to do in prayer And we are really just praying for God to do what he's going to do anyways. We might not ever say it quite this explicitly, but think about how you pray. 
And of course, in this particular instance, God didn't change his course. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Even Jesus in Gethsemane, on his way to the cross, what we might consider one of the most necessary, requisite, and God-ordained events in all of human history, Jesus prayed with the presumption that as a response to his prayer, God might change course. Do you pray this way? I know here at Christ City, you know, we're Acts 29, and we kind of lean reformed-ish at Christ City, and so often we place a lot of premium on the sovereignty of God. But may I submit to you the following. God's ability and capacity and choice to respond to our prayers is not mutually exclusive with his sovereignty. Both things can be true. Dallas Willard writes, and this is kind of a long quote, and I didn't know if this was a good idea. I don't mean to shake us up too much. I know for some of you this might rattle your cage a bit, but we're going to read it anyways because because I think it's helpful. Willard writes in The Divine Conspiracy, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyways. Our requests, our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering because our requests really do make a difference. One presumption of prayer, the presumption of Jesus on display here in Gethsemane, the presumption of the friend at midnight, the presumption of the persistent widow, the presumption of the psalmist that prays, oh, why are you downcast, oh, my soul, yet I will praise him. The presumption of prayer is that prayer matters. As James will tell us a bit later, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And hopefully you know this, as Paul tells all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, that our faith has been credited as righteous, guaranteed. So your prayers are powerful and effective. There's actually a second presumption of prayer that I think goes a bit deeper, grounds the first, and it is... Again, I apologize to be too philosophical, but it's more fundamental. The presumption is not merely that God will answer our prayers, but rather the working assumption that motivates or that ought to motivate and sustain the prayers of those who follow Jesus is this. Not merely that God will answer, but that God will hear. The presumption of prayer is not merely that God will answer, but rather that God will hear. Of course, we expect God to answer, but his hearing comes first. It's further down. It's more basic. God will hear our prayers. And so I know some of you are thinking this seems obvious and so silly, and why do we even have to name it explicitly? 
But I do think we need to make it explicit because if we don't think that God hears our prayers, we won't pray. Think about the Psalms, the prayer book of our Bible. The prayers there feel the need to be explicit about this very fact. They're full of phrases like, hear my prayer, Lord. Hear my plea. Attend to my prayer. Jesus, even as he prays at the tomb of Lazarus, as he is raising him from the dead in John chapter 11, prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You always hear me. As an illustration, think about those of you that have um, young children at home that are parents. You know how often your kids ask you for stuff? They always ask you for things. And you always answer them for the most part. You always answer them, even if sometimes the answer is no. In fact, at certain periods of your children's life, you say no a lot. Probably uh, there's periods where you say no more than you say yes, perhaps. But what is it that your child expects when they ask you for something? They expect an answer, but what they really expect, in fact, what they really need is to be heard. To feel loved and cared for, to grow and mature, to feel secure in their identity, known in their full personhood. What your child needs is not merely an answer, but is to be heard. Or maybe you can relate to this, those of you that don't have kids, if you're married or have ever been in a relationship for any period of time, maybe you've been in the middle of a marital dispute or an argument or something like that. If you've heard your spouse say something like the following, you're just not hearing me. Husbands probably hear this more than wives. I know I do, but like all the most important and significant relationships in our life, the presumption of prayer is to be heard. Again, it may feel obvious and kind of trivial to even point it out, but think about how this might change the way you pray. If all you expect is an answer, your prayer life will remain nothing but petitions. All you will do is ask for stuff. All you'll do is make requests, and it will deteriorate into a litany of said requests. But prayer is more than this. Prayer that first and foremost expects God to hear is prayer that talks with God, not at him. Often we talk about God in our prayers because somewhere deep inside we don't think he really hears us. But prayer that knows that God hears no longer talks about God, but rather talks with God about you. It is an honest, vulnerable, intimate conversation, even in those most painful and difficult circumstances of life. In the middle of panic attacks even, we talk with God in prayer because he hears us. So having worked through the problem of prayer, having persevered for a time in prayer, all while praying with a certain presumption about prayer, that it matters and that God hears us, we now find ourselves just like Jesus, our face in the dirt, prostrated on the ground, praying in the posture of prayer. So our final heading. So let me again ask a series of questions. Hopefully this will kind of get us thinking in the same direction. Where do you pray more, in public or in private? Maybe an odd question to ask. 
Where do you pray the most? In public with other people or in private by yourself? And a related question, how interior or exterior is your faith? How interior or exterior is your faith? So just as we saw in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 18, there is a certain posture of prayer that I see embodied by Jesus in today's verses. Hopefully you've picked up on it. Because prayer, as we saw in the parable a few weeks ago, is not a performance. It is not a proud or boastful act. Prayer is not a backhanded insult to those around us. It is not weaponized to make people do what you want. Prayer, because its posture is primarily one of humility, is in many ways inconspicuous. Prayer is often hidden. Here's what I mean. If we pray with humility, we might pray things like, your will be done. We acknowledge that sometimes we don't pray as we ought. That sometimes our prayers reflect disordered desires causing us to ask for things without knowing the full consequences. But praying with a posture of humility is not merely prayer, it's not merely praying with the awareness that God is God and we are not. The posture that keeps our praying inconspicuous, I think I read that wrong. Praying with a posture of humility is not merely praying with the awareness that God is God and we are not. There's something else going on. The posture of humility keeps our praying inconspicuous because it refuses to allow our prayers to become performances, spectacles, what we might call, this is a little phrase I coined, PDRA, public displays of religious affection. Jesus tells us during the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray. Think about today's scripture. Jesus says to Judas, you betray me with a kiss? You betray me with a kiss? How many of us, not only in our prayers, but in our fervent religious activity, in our practical, pragmatic, results-oriented doing, betray Jesus with something like a kiss. It's simply false affection. But, Peterson writes, prayer goes beneath the surface and penetrates to the heart of the matter. Unlike mere action, prayer is not subject to immediate evaluation or verification. Prayer represents a deep interiority because prayer in the life of faith in general is not an outward performance to hide some inner perversion. It is not an outward demonstration to mask some inner deception, nor is it an outward behavior as the disguise of an inner betrayal. Prayer is not the empty insincerity of flowery, flattering, faithless friendship and affection or contrived religiosity. How much of our activity is motivated by a need to be seen, to be thought of as a good person, to be recognized as such, to be validated and vindicated, Is this why we prefer our own activity over prayer? Because we prefer immediate results over long-term growth? Perhaps it's because we prefer spectacle over substance, false affection versus true love, because our faith only goes skin deep, because in our endless busyness, we have never developed a sacred interiority 
We have never cultivated what the scriptures call the abundance of the heart. What Paul says is the inner person, so that we no longer see prayer as a life source for us, for all that we do and hope to accomplish. Is this why we don't pray? Posture of prayer realizes that the inner life cannot be made right by the outer life. Say that again. Posture is a realization. The posture of prayer is a realization that our inner life cannot be made right by our outer life. That the external circumstances of my life can only reach into me so far and that fundamentally the exterior cannot fix the interior and satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. And prayer is an enactment of this. And its posture is one of humble dependence. Again, Peterson helps. A prayerless life can result in much effective action and accomplish magnificent things. But if there is no developed interiority, the action never enters into the depth of intimacy, of intricacy, of relationship, where the stuff of creation is formed, where salvation is worked, where men and women find themselves present and at home with the way of God. All of, all, of these, all of this brings us back to where we began. Where is your zeal? What is your first instinct? To get to work? To do something? To jump into action? To draw your sword and get busy? Or is it to pray? Is the abundance of your heart out of which your mouth speaks, whether publicly or privately, out loud or silently, is the abundance of your heart such that your first instinct is to assume the posture of prayer and depend on God? In a way, Peter draws his sword as an attempt to not do the very thing that Jesus said he would do, the very thing that Jesus warned him about, Peter's drawing his sword was his attempt to keep from falling away. But is this really what Jesus had in mind? Is this what he meant by not falling away? Or perhaps did it look more like this? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While we may often prefer activity over relationship and results over prayer, that does not mean that prayer doesn't have its own kind of results. What we see in Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane is the result of a prayer that perseveres, that presumes that God hears, that is prayed from a posture of humility and deep interiority. What we see in Jesus as he rises from prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is peace. This very same Jesus who goes to face his accusers, to face his betrayer, to face his imminent death and crucifixion, who knows full well the cup he is about to drink, the pain, the torment, the sin of the world is about to be heaved upon the bloodied, shredded skin of his back and a thread of thorns dug into the crown of his head, and yet Jesus rises from prayer resolute, resolved, and at peace with everything that is about to happen to him. So as a final heading to conclude our time, we can add to this list the peace of prayer. Later, Paul, while speaking specifically about prayer, calls this peace that passes all understanding. 
So for all of us results junkies, those of us addicted to efficiency and practicality, this is good news. Prayer does have results. Listen to what Paul writes to the Philippians. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean that we'll never be anxious. Even our Lord himself found himself anxious and sorrowful and troubled, even to the point of death. But it does mean we don't have to stay anxious. So let's pray. I'm actually not going to pray out loud up here in front of everyone, but instead as a way of practicing. You can come on up, Sam, sorry. But, uh, but as a way of kind of practicing the hiddenness of prayer, um, I'm just going to take a few minutes until Sam to hold off from playing, and we'll just take about two minutes for each of you to pray silently there in your seats um, as a kind of a, a way of, for us to kind of practice the interiority, the posture of prayer. Um, and then afterwards, um, Sam will begin playing and we'll continue together in song and receive communion.